0: Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Last week we began looking at this portion uh, of Scripture and uh, we didn't have enough time to be able to go through uh, the rest of the names here, so we'll be looking mainly at verses uh, 24 to 39 this evening, but before we begin, let's just go over a little bit of a, a recap that helps us understand where we're at. Uh, we're in the end section of Second Samuel, so I uh, repeat this almost every week as a good reminder of why this is here, because if we just look at this, we just see random stories, random pieces of information, but how are they all connected, and why is this important? Why is it at the end? Um, so the context of where we find ourselves is that Uh, We find ourselves in six parts, and those two parts begin with Saul's sin, leftover sin in the the kingdom that David needs to deal with, and the last portion in chapter 24, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing, is about David's sin, and uh, there's a sin problem in the camp uh, within David's kingdom. And then in the next section, you have uh, uh, David's mighty men uh, in the first section in chapter 21, David's... Uh, four mighty men that defeated the giants, as we saw, David was not able to be able to go out. He was too valuable for them to be able to go out. And then in the middle of all this, you have uh, these songs or these poems about God and how he has delivered um, them. So in this section, you see David's weakness of David's weakness of the inherited kingdom. You see David's weakness next week in uh, chapter 24. You see David uh, and his men that he, as he rose to the throne, he wasn't alone um, and we pointed out, as we look at this portion, that we uh, the need to be able to look at uh, how David reigned, uh, what changed in David's kingdom since the kingdom he inherited, what's the same that continues even on, underneath David, and what type of kingdom is David left? What type of kingdom has he um, been able to leave for his son Solomon, as we will see in 1 Kings? But of all of this, I think what we see in this structure is many different stories that we can understand different points, but we see that David is sinful. David inherited a sinful kingdom. He, he leaves a sinful kingdom. Uh, he has his faults and his flaws as a sinner, but yet he is the one that God uses. Uh, he's the one that God uses to be able to build his uh, kingdom, to be able to grow and establish it. Uh, he uses not only David, but also David's men that surround him. You see a lacking of David's kingdom in these portions of Scripture, something that you're longing for the perfect t- kingdom, uh, the perfect king who does not sin. So this is where we find ourselves in this portion. But then the other thing that helps us is the structure, actually, of the passage that we find in Second Samuel chapter 23. And uh, we remember that uh, the structure in chapter 23 sees uh, the three mighty men, the might of the man. Uh, the three anonymous men, the value of men, the three leaders, the ranks of men here, and the 30 men, the men of honor. So remember, we looked at, uh, to begin with, the three mighty men, the might of the men. Uh, these are the, the named among the three, the, the great of, the, of all of David's men. Jo, uh, Josheb, uh, he killed 800 men with a spear. Uh, Eleazar, in the field of barley, he says that everyone else left him, but yet here he is fighting for his life, grasping the hilt of his sword. Uh, but after this, uh, he uses God uses him, Eliezer, to be able to bring victory. But then what happens after he brings victory? All the Israelites come back, return to the battlefield, not to fight, but to uh, claim their um, uh, gold and th- take things off the other soldiers. And then lastly, of those top three, Shema. He was the one that uh, was in the field of lentils. He defended this area. He struck down the Philistines. Um, a great and mighty man. He was uh, a doer of good. Uh, no, that's uh, Benaiah later, but the, there's Shema. And then you had the three anonymous, the, the three that go and get water for David. David doesn't drink the water. He, he points out that he, uh, he does not see himself greater than these men. Uh, pointed out that this was earlier in David's kingdom and a good reminder that Uriah, um, that Joab made about uh, Absalom. And then uh, the three leaders, the ranks of men. Now, Joab is not specifically mentioned in this list as a man um, listed, but he is mentioned several times. We'll see him again tonight. Um, but he's the command of the army. You have Abishai, the chief of the 30, and then Benaiah, the doer of good deeds. Uh, he killed the lion in the snow, struck down the Egyptian. Uh, with the Egyptian spear, he's also David's bodyguard. Now we turn to the last portion here, and uh, we look at the 30 men, uh, the men of honor. Now we'll look at this shortly, but uh, because we've divided this over two weeks instead of one, I have a little bit more time to be able to cover this portion, and I want to focus on... um, I want to look at another focus of these mighty men sections, what you might call these mighty men sections in chapter 21 and then repeated in chapter 23. And within these six parts, you see sin on either side, one and six. You see the enemies on the outside uh, in parts two and three. So the sin within the camp of Saul and the sin of David is something that is internal within Israel. They are not enemies outside they're internal enemies, you might say, that is reigning in the kingdom. But then in these second portions, portion um, two and then portion four, uh, five, you see that the enemies are outside. And there's a common thread throughout all of this. Now, we know that David fought other nations, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Zoabites, the Edomites. But in sections 21 and 23, really, there's one main enemy that is mentioned over and over again. Now, besides um, Benaiah, who who took the spear from the Egyptian, you have every other enemy that is mentioned in these periods in chapter 21 and then chapter 23 is the Philistines. Now, um, we briefly looked at this in the second half of chapter 21. There was the refrain that went through all this period of time, and there was, again, war with the Philistines. Now, as we think, now broader in in the context of 2 Samuel, remember that this is uh, before that period of, um, it's in this period of time you call the United Kingdom. I don't like that phrase because you see even within this time, you see United Kingdom kind of under Saul. Saul leaves, there's division, there's the house of Saul, the house of David. You have David for seven years ruling in Hebron. You kind of have Judah and Israel. Separated in this time, and then you have David and Absalom uh, go with Absalom, and then after even David dies, and before Solomon gets to the throne, uh, David's other son comes to the throne um, and tries to claim the throne. So it's it's not necessarily united in that sense, but it's that period of time we like to call the United Kingdom, but the start of the Kings, David and uh, Saul. But you have one major enemy that comes up throughout all this period of time between Saul and uh, David. And that's the Philistines. Samson, uh, one of the la- the last judge in the book of Judges, he was fighting against the Philistines. Eli, the the, uh, la- uh, the started first Samuel, uh, and then Samuel. All of these judges were fighting against uh, the Philistines. King Saul went out to fight them. I remember that story with uh, Jonathan and the garrison and the Philistines, and and even uh, as he's going and chasing David around and. Uh, as they're going in the wilderness of Ziph and they come and try and catch him. And they get to the mountain and then they got a call that Philistines are starting to invade uh, Israel. Even David fought them. His mighty men fought them. Um, and they won. And we see this uh, in that victory section uh, after ch- chapter 7, chapters 8 to, and 10 specifically, of David and, and all that he does to be able to conquer during his reign. And now we see that the mighty men are the ones that actually fought with him. Now, interestingly, we have mention of Moabites, Zoabites, um, Ammonites, Hittites. They're the Assyrians. And all of them are David's mighty men. However, in all of this, we don't see any Philistines coming and joining David's mighty men. And we don't see any Egyptians either. Now, we can't forget Ittai the Gittite, uh, who is a Philistine from Gath who does help and fight David against his son um, uh, Absalom. Um, But remember, even Gath, that David has this uh, interesting, strange relationship with those people at Gath. He goes in there and he pretends to be mad, foaming at the mouth. He goes and makes friends um, with Achish, the lord of Gath. Um, The the Philistines have five lords in different areas. They don't really have a king. They have five lords, and they're kind of somewhat of a... um, I don't know what you'd call that, um, confederacy. Um, and then you have, uh, but he also, what did he do? He killed the Goliath, their gladiator. And when they were singing their songs, Saul killed their thousands. David killed his tens of thousands. What are they singing about? Well, they're singing about generally Philistines. Now, the main point I want to point out in all of this is that that during this period of time, the Philistines rose to such a great level of conflict within the Israelites, from Samson, even before that, but Samson all the way through to David. Um, You think, all of this time, but here comes David. And David comes, and he rules, and what we see is, as a reminder in chapter 8, after David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took uh, uh, Megag-Emma, out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, kings down the line will fight them. Hezekiah, Josiah will fight them. And I think they're uh, reminders for us that uh, of how Hezekiah and Josiah are like uh, good kings, like their father David was a good king. And we'll see at some point, David is one of those kings that everyone is compared to. Um, But... Uh, The Lord used David and his mighty men to be able to defeat this giant enemy, literally sometimes the giants. Well, why is this important? Why is this important as we think about the end of David's reign? Why is this specific information that they defeated the Philistines important? Well, remember one of the promises that God gave in chapter 7. And he uh, said that, I have been with you wherever you went, and cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make your name great, you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them. So they will dwell in their own place, and be disturbed by no one. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that you, the Lord, will make you a house. So here, even now as we're looking at this um, section of passage, that all of these men and their mighty deeds are called mighty men of David. And all of these men are serving David. And David is named through these people are made great like the Lord says, that he's going to make a great name for you. But you see that from this period of time of judges, as all these nations have come in, there's going to be a promise here that God says that that I will give you rest from all of your enemies. And specifically, one of the big enemies at this point around this period of time is the Philistines. And the mighty men, God is using them to be able to make David's name great, but he's using them to be able to defeat these Philistines. And we actually see this fulfilled in 1 Kings chapter 5. Now Hiram the king of Tyre sent his servants to Solomon, where he heard that they had anointed him king in the place of his father, and Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord for His God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. So again, the enemies are surrounding David and his kingdom, but God uses David and his mighty men to be able to defeat them, to put them under his feet. And then in verse 4, But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. So I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to, my da- to David, my father, your son whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build a house for my name. So here you have, again, this promise that we see in, in a part of this period of time and why it ends here in 2 Samuel is God is reminding us that David, and through his mighty men, had defeated his enemies that now they have rest on every side. And as we thre- read through this list of names, we see how God fulfills this promise that he made to David in chapter 7. And he fulfills it through David doing this, but also mighty men who come along and serve and fight uh, for the Lord. Now, just as we see this in the New Testament, the same uh, principle is applied. That God uses men and women to advance his kingdom that Jesus, our king, has defeated the final enemy. We are his servants, and we're still in battle. So as David is finishing his reign, and the author Nathan, I think, at this point, is looking back on David's reign. He's also looking forward to that place where Solomon could say that he has rest on every side to be able to fulfill that prophecy that God had said. Now, these are important men. Some of these men had an important job of a job of rotation within a military um, capacity. Many of these men actually looked after a division of about 24,000 men. They, for a month, Were over 24,000 men. So we read through even these 30 names, which kind of get moved to the bottom of the list. They're not of the three. They're not close to the three, as those uh, three others are, that are almost named among the three. Now, just to put that in perspective... Abington has about 8,300 people as population. Bristol has about 17,000 on the Virginia side and about 27,000 on the Tennessee side. Washington County is about 53,000 people. So some of these men here are looking after half of Washington County for a month when it comes to military conquests. And it's not merely that they're looking after them, they're leading them into battle. So, when we read through these names, these are not small names. They actually did great things. We told at the beginning of chapter 27 in First Chronicles, this is the number of the people of Israel, the heads of the father's houses, the commanders of thousands and hundreds. And their officers who serve the king in all matters concerning the divisions that came and went, month after month throughout the year, each division numbering 24,000. So, some of these names on these list again... They're very important people that did great things. So what can we learn? Well, let's read through the names and then uh, look at this passage. All right. here now the word of the Lord from 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 24 to 39. Ashahil, Hill, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. Elhanan, the son of uh, Dodu of Bethlehem, Shema of Harad, Elika of Harad, Helez of the Paliite, Ira of Ikish of Tekoa, abai of Anathoth, and Mibun, uh, Mibunai the Hushai, Hushahite, Zelmon the Hoite, Maharai the Netoath, Hileb the son of Baha, Bana uh, the, of Netoath, Ittai the son of Ribai, of uh, Gilbert, Gilber, the son the people of Benjamin, Baniah of Pirathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gash, Abi Elbon the Abathite, Asmaveth of Buhurim, Eli, Abba, the Shelbonite, the sons of Jushan, Jonathan, Shama the Harite, Aha, Ahayam, the son of Sha'ar, Harite, Elipeth, the son of Ahashbi, of Makkah, Eliam, the son of Ahitophil, the Gilonite, Hezro of Carmel, Parai, the Arbite, Ilgal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani the Gadite, Zelek Zil, the Ammonite, Naharai, of Biroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zurai, Ira, the Ithite, uh, Ithrite, Gariab, the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. So, briefly, just uh, maybe some statistics. Here uh, in this passage, we have 32 names listed. Shema, which is found in verse uh, 33, is uh, one of the three, those three mighty men that we saw to begin with. But uh, you have in 31, you have the plural, the sons of Jashan. So, although Shema is listed here and also listed above, you, you then have the, the 32nd name, you might say, that comes in this list that um, is there, uh, the sons of Jashon. Now, majority of these uh, men probably come from Judah. Uh, you have Joab, the son of Zariah, the king, the brothers kin to, uh, to J- David. Uh, David's sister uh, is their mother. Uh, Judah and Israel divide, uh, and there's conflict long before uh, the divided kingdom. Again, it's hard to be able to know the exact numbers. It's, uh, it's not that it's impossible. It's just that we necessarily don't have all that information at our disposal. It, uh, it's, uh, we're just not told. Specifically, we're not told where everyone is from. We're not told who's everyone's father is. We're not told where every clan uh, comes from. Now we're told some names, some cities. We're told some clans, some tribes, some nationalities. Now, generally speaking, probably about fifty percent to sixty-six percent, two-thirds of these people probably from, come from the tribe of Judah. And then we have at least from the tri- three from the tribe of Benjamin. But I think generally speaking, it's more, especially if you look at uh, Second. Uh, in the passage in First Chronicles, uh, chapter twelve, you see there's a lot of people from the tribe of Benjamin. And again, that explains a lot when you go then to be able to see that divided kingdom. Why Judah and Benjamin are paired together—they're close, but also they have this relationship between Saul and David, and then these uh, kin when they fought p- together. Of then you have two from Manasseh two from Ephraim, uh, one from Dan, one from Gad so for all of you playing at home and you're counting in your head, uh, there's about 24 to 29 of them that we know specifically where they're from. Um, you know, again, it's hard to be able to do all those numbers, but you see the majority. You see three, at least from different nations on the list, Zobah in verse 20, uh, 36, Ammonite in verse uh, 37, and the Hittite in verse 39. As mentioned previously, we're going to uh, go to other scriptural references such as names, people, names of cities and regions. You have uh, you, know, you have periods of gaps. So you have Joshua. So you're turning back to Joshua 15, seeing where they're dividing lands, what their markers are. And you, that's how you kind of get to where people are from. They normally live in a city. Uh, even if they're sold off into slavery, generally the land was then given back to their family and their family tribes. So normally they would stay within their tribes. Uh, things change. Um, you see this a lot during uh, the times of the prophets and things like this, that people would leave. Um, so you have Joshua, Judges, the kings, all of these change. But there are some names that are not mentioned anywhere else in the uh, Old Testament. Um, some of those are uh, in verse 31, Baram, uh, Shalban in verse 32, Hurah, verse 33 and verse 34. So they're not mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament. So you're left wondering where these places are, so you've either got to make an educated guess or just be able to say we don't know specifically. Or other names can have different locations. It's like saying, well, I'm going to Greenville. Well, where are you going? You're going to Greenville in North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee. Um, it just uh, So it says Carmel in verse 35. There's a Carmel in Judah, and there's a Carmel in uh, Manasseh as well. So, all of that to be able to say, uh, here's a little bit of statistics, but I think Dale Ralph Davis summarizes this passage quite well. He says, The name is in the list. That means they excelled in fighting for or in fidelity to the king. We needn't bellyache about their vocation or prioritize them as being henchmen of David's ruthless power and violent force. No, they fought. And they fought well. And since David was Yahweh's covenant king, their fighting really constituted fighting for the kingdom of God in this world. But somehow the scriptures can't get away from lists. I'm tempted to say that the Bible loves lists, maybe because God never tires of naming the names of his people. So again, a good reminder for us of how and why we find ourselves in lists. And we, again, will gloss over names like this, but we're glad that God doesn't gloss over names like this because often in times that we're not uh, the David uh, in the army, we're not the uh, people in high positions of power, we're doing ordinary things, serving God in ordinary ways. But yet he continues to be able to list in the scripture uh, what people do with their day-to-day lives. Now, I could uh, spend... Uh, Some time seeking to be able to connect uh, these, but uh, let's choose four categories to be able to look at maybe uh, different people in this list, um, five men in total, and then be able to try and understand a little bit more about these uh, 32 names that are listed in this passage we're going to look at, uh, we're looking at tonight. So it begins with Asher Hill, and uh, we've known him from the start. He died really at the hand of Abner. Uh, the, he's the brother of Joab and Abishai. Uh, you must imagine that there, there's something in that blood that uh, caused them to be great warriors or whatever reason it is. but we need to know that Ashahel actually died before David was king of Israel. So this helps us understand a little bit about this list as well. So early even early in his kingship, before he was king of Israel, before you might say this official position of this mighty men, category was made, David had some form of special soldiers that he used to be able to lead his army, whether it was called his 30 mighty men or not, whether it became 30 later. We see David, even early in his kingship, being able to use people to be able to advance uh, God's kingdom and cause. Um this is just something that flows throughout David's kingdom. It's not something that just en- appears at the end. I think this is why we have a Hill here uh, at this beginning. Uh, the second man we can think about of when we're thinking about David's kingdom and why this list is important is in verse 39 that it says, It's I, the son of Ribai, of Gilbert, the people of Benjamin. Now, why is this important? Now, I often... How do you know what names are important in a list like this? I think that, uh, for me, what I often look at is patterns, but also things that uh, stand out um, against that. And this name specifically stands out because it tells us the most about anybody here. It tells us who his son is, who, who his father is, who he, uh, where he is from, and what tribe he is from. So it's important because there we have people from the tribe of Benjamin serving alongside David. Now consider what happened before. You had the house of Saul, and you had the house of David, and they were viciously at war with one another. And you must assume that Benjamin somewhat would have sided with Saul, being that Saul was a Benjaminite. So you have this division before David comes to the throne, but now you have Benjaminites coming and serving alongside David. They're able to put those things. David is able to be able to unite what was broken. But I think this, this reference goes further than just Saul and the house of Saul and the house of David. Now remember Judges, the, the book that precedes this period of time of the kingdom and Judges about this cycle of sin that they go through. That Israel has, has got this promised land. They're not living as God promises. They walk away from God. And then an enemy God raises up to be able to come and punish them as he tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And this cycle of sin. But it's not just about a cycle of sin. It's about this cycle of sin that turns into a spiral. That the cycle of sin gets worse and worse as they continue to walk through that a book. Remember Samson. Samson's the last ju- judge in the book of um, Judges. Now, out of all the people, you wouldn't necessarily say, you know, be more like Samson, children. You know, he's not the best example when it comes to morality. He's not the best outstanding citizen. He doesn't treat his parents kindly. And what you see is that the leaders in Israel are, are downgrading, you might say. But it ends not just after Samson passes away, but the end is actually about this ruin and wickedness that the the people of God act like the other nations around them. God called them to be a nation set apart, holy, like he is holy. But what are they like? They're actually worse than the other nations. Actually, they're compared like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is what the holy nation is looking like. And this refrain comes through that in those days there was no king in Israel and a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, and he took himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. So here you have a Levite who's meant to be holy and what does he do? He then takes a concubine. but they the story continues and explains that they go on their way, the sun sets over and which and where do they go? Gilbert, which is belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside to go there, and in there they spent the night at Gilbert. And he went in and sat down at the open square of the city. Again, what does this remind you of? Sodom and Gomorrah. And no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming in from work in the field at evening. And the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gilbert. And the men of the place were Benjaminites. So again, we're repeated here. What's important here? They're in Gilbert, they're in Benjamin, they're in the tribe of Benjamin. But then the old man says, peace be with you. I will care for you all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the night in the square. He's warning him about this wickedness of this place where he's found himself. What happens? He goes in to stay with this old man and they come knocking on his door and they they were saying that they were making their hearts merry. Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Again, exactly like Sodom and Gomorrah. And where is this happening? It's happening in Gilber and Benjamin. In this wicked tribe. This ta- in this wicked town. And what does the author of Samuel remind us of? Of this wickedness that was happening before David came to the throne in this town, in the city. And here, this man is one of David's mighty men. He is loyal to the true king. And the author highlights this person specifically, Ittai, to be able to make us not just connect to Saul, but make us connect to what type of rule and reign David has had. He's able to have what is known as worthless uh, fellows of this town, and now they're coming and serving the true king. This unholy town is now serving David in a holy way in David's army. So, the third uh, person or the third category you might say here, we have two in this case. But uh, I'm merging these two. Here you have in verse 36 and then verse 37 you have Igal the son of Nathan of Zobel and uh, Zilek uh, the Ammonite. Now why is this important? That you have uh, in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, Saul taking kingship over Israel, he fought all his enemies on every side So here he is fighting on every side against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. And then what happens again in David's reign in chapter 8? He kills, he defeated the king of Zobar. And he restores his power there. And then again in chapter 10. When they made the kings of the servants of Hadar saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to him. To them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. And again in chapter 12. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor in saws and irons and picks and pick iron axes and made them toil in brick kilns. And thus he did to the city of the Ammonites. David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So why is this important? Again, as we think about David's reign and and how he he goes in to be able to conquer his enemies, but yet you have what people who once were his enemies are now leaders in his armies. Just as uh, Ittai, the Benjaminite, is there serving in his armies. You have now um, these people who once were enemies now serving in his ranks in the army that here these people are showing loyalty. As uh, we pointed out there in, in chapter 17, as he's fleeing and David uh, came to Mahanaim and Shobah the, the son of Nahash the, uh, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, uh, here you have uh, people from foreign countries showing the true king their loyalty. And again, this is important that uh, you have Benjamin, coming and serving the true king. Once was wicked, now serving David. And now you have David's kingdom is one of also outsiders. So now you see that in the principle in the New Testament, where the New Testament is that it's not just those who are free in Israel, that David's kingdom is, 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 is a shadow and a glimpse of what is to come. That a shadow is not just that it's a kingdom for uh, those who are born as the sons of Abraham, but those who are spiritually the sons of Abraham. And you see that here in this list. But lastly, and I think this is an important thing here that we see, is the last name on the list, Uriah the Hittite. Now, out of this 32 names listed here, it begins and ends with death, Ashahil and Uriah. Now, we know what happened. We see these champions, and the author wants us to remember that David did a lot of good in the kingdom. But there's also a reminder here of the tainted past, which is still haunting David's kingdom. You see here Uriah. We're reminded not that just Uriah served David, but Uriah died faithfully serving David. Here he is, a Hittite uh, from Assyria, Assyrians, what we know as the Assyrians. Assyrians. And here he is, he's listed among the mighty men. That David, and we're also, then you're reminded of chapters 11 and 12. David's great big sin that we know all too well. And in all of this, I think you can see how we see that that, that need for Christ and his perfect kingship. The need of Christ to come. In all of this, we see that, that God still delivers David and his mighty men, that center, but, but surrounding the center of God delivering them is, is David's sin, the, the sin of David's uh, sin in 24, the sin of Saul in chapter 21. You see the sin here, even in this reminder of David's mighty men. You see that need for Christ to come, for him to rule and rule perfectly. But I want to leave you with One thought. However, difficult these passages are, we need to take a lot of joy in them. Because, we need to take a lot of joy because, unless we're famous and renowned, to be honest, you'd be lucky to get your name recorded. Like a lot of these people on this list, they're lost like that long list of credits that rolls up in a movie. All of them played their part in moving, uh, making that motion picture for us to be able to see and enjoy. And many of us wouldn't know if their name was missing from the end, but hopefully we would notice if they weren't a part of the film. There'd be something lacking in the film that wasn't quite right. They all play in a very important part. We don't really care about who the set designer is or who the person is who's making the coffee for all the actors, but they all play a very important part. And here in scripture, we have yet another example of God's kingdom, that it's not just about God's kingdom and God's king, specifically in this case, David, or even about Abraham or Peter or Paul. But you see that God's kingdom is filled with many people, each of them serving God in their own small ways. I mean, I think these men are not doing it in a small way, again, leading 24,000 men. I'm probably, hopefully, maybe maybe I'm making coffee for one of those 24,000 men. But all of them are serving God in their calling. We might not have books or chapters, but we pray that we might be able to appear maybe in someone's list somewhere in someone's Bible verse, their own personal life story about the impact that we have. I mean, I'm grateful as I read passages like this about men like Ittai or Zelek or Ilgal that we pray that we would be faithful to be able to serve God and how He has called us to be able to serve Him. We have these lists as a reminder that God's kingdom is very important and how we might be able to encourage one another. Or as in, in um, the book of Kings, when Elijah is there and he's just defeated the prophets of Baal and he's crying out to God, I'm the only one. And God says, you're not the only one. There's 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's a faithful remnant. Now, we only know the name of Elijah. We don't know the name of the other 7,000. We might know Elisha. But here's those faithful people still not bowing the knee to Baal. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com.